Welcome to Mindset, a guide to getting out of your own way and a blueprint for professional success. Today, neuroscientist Shelley Laslett is here to explain self-doubt. We've all felt it, and in small amounts, it keeps us humble and allows us to think critically about where we can improve, but in large doses, it can be paralyzing. I doubt that I come across as confident, like in meetings and things like that. I feel clunky sometimes, and so, yeah, I worry that comes across to people. Um, I think with work, because of the industry I work in, I do doubt my skill set. I feel like I doubt myself about a range of things, and it depends on the situation, but the biggest source of doubt comes down to imposter syndrome and feeling like I'm going to be found out. Shelley, how do we tell the difference between healthy self-reflection and damaging self-doubt? Yeah, so healthy self-reflection generally starts with curiosity, whereas self-doubt starts with questioning and judgment. So if you're not sure of the difference, curiosity is like, oh, that was interesting. Why did why did that happen? Versus, oh my gosh, that was such a failure. You did this. I should have done that. I can't believe And you can see there's a different narrative there, right? There's a different conversation. So self-reflection, looking back on our thinking, diving into our thinking, understanding our thinking, what we are using there is something called metacognition in our self-reflective practice. Metacognition, meta being small and cognition thinking, we're thinking about our thinking, right? Now, we all have this ability. I want to be really clear. Everything that I'm talking about on a neurological principle throughout this conversation, you already have within you. You don't have to go and buy it. You don't have to purchase it. You don't have to do a course. By the fact that you're human, you have these abilities within you. But like all things in the body, what you use gets the most attention. So, you know, your metacognition is a muscle in a sense. Obviously, it's in your brain, so it's not exactly like the same as a bicep or, or your quadricep. But what it does do is it gets a workout when it's used. So what we want to be doing is practicing healthy self-reflection and healthy self-reflection is being curious, understanding our behaviors, understanding our inputs. It's really important to also know in the same breath that self-reflection governs and drives social awareness. So you can't actually be socially aware without being self-aware because what you think of the world actually is reflective about how you think of yourself within the world. Where that probably sounds a bit like a philosopher, but what I really mean there is the easiest way to understand whether or not it's self-reflective or self-doubt is, is it critical? Is it kind? Is it fair? And fair is balanced, right? Fair not as in a colour, fair as in is it balanced? What are both sides to this situation? If I can only hear the side where I'm a failure and I did something wrong and it must be attributed exactly to myself, that's not fair. That's not balanced. That's not reflective. One of the easiest things here is, would you say the things you're saying to yourself to your best mate? And if the answer is no, first of all, stop saying it to yourself. Just stop. It's not helpful. Right. And the second thing comes with, well, what would you say to your best friend instead? And that's the type of conversation you need to start having with yourself. Now, best friends don't always just big us up. Like, yeah, they do. But the real relationships that we have with our best friends, they have the ability to say, hey, Shelley, yeah, look, you you probably should have done this. And that's okay. You know that now. What do we need to do to get you to where you need to be? Or what do we need to do to remedy this? Now, that's taking responsibility 
that's not beating myself up about it. Okay, you said to stop when you notice those thoughts. So you feel it happening and you catch yourself in that loop. What can you actually substitute for those thoughts instead? It's energy, right? Thoughts are just energy. So sometimes it's like change the environment. Okay, get up out of the chair, wherever you are. What do you need to do? Maybe you actually just need to park this. Maybe this is not the time to analyze it. So in that moment, I'd say get moving, right? So either get out of the environment you're in, go for a walk, hit the gym, pound the pavement, do whatever you do that allows you to move, hit the yoga mat, just give yourself space away from it. Tell your brain, this is not the time to process it. I hear the warning sign. I'm going to go do this instead. The other thing about physical activity, which is fantastic, is it naturally burns up energy. So it naturally is going to exert some of that anxiety into a physical externalization, into a physical thing, into a physical activity. Some of that also means you have some clarity. It can create some distance. One of the other things you can do is journal about it. You know, there's something very um, tactile and therapeutic about words on a page versus thoughts inside your head. So write it down, right? So the other thing you can also do here if you're wondering whether or not it's it's helpful dialogue is write down all the things you're feeling, stop, look at those things and think, does anyone else say that to me in my world, right? Is this kind? Is it necessary? Is it fair? Right? Look back on it and reflect. And it, chances are it's probably not. But also rather than then go, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot because I beat myself up, accept that that's human. That is actually really normal. That is actually really, really normal. I'm going to say normal a lot, which is like a very inverted commas, what is normal, but it means it's iconically human. When I'm saying it, it means that tick, you are a human. We, we want those things. So one is change the environment and that can be as simple as like, just go and make a cup of tea. You know, sometimes when you're working and you have a little break and you go away and as you're waiting for the kettle to boil or as you're washing your hands because you go into the bathroom, the idea comes to you then. Sometimes you need to create space and distance. All you're doing then is creating space for your brain to have that aha moment, that light bulb moment as we call it. The other thing is the physical movement processes that energy. It gives you time and space. It also then releases some more of the sort of more happy endorphins that allows us to have a more, I guess, balanced self-reflective practice. You can then write it down. What we're doing there is labeling, we're identifying, we're increasing metacognition. The other thing is you can, if it's part of your practice, if it's part of your toolkit, you can do something mindful, right? You can actually be like, no, I'm just going to meditate on this or I'm going to practice my mindfulness. I'm going to take this to my yoga mat. You know, a lot of people have that practice where they kind of surrender the outcome in their in their yoga practice. That's a fantastic way of processing, you know, it, it, it is moving meditation, the last thing I would say is talk to somebody about it, talk to a trusted advisor and confidant. But I'd say when talking to them, know that they will have their own agenda about what you should or shouldn't do. So go in and set up the conversation as, hey, I'm feeling this. I just need you to listen. The support I need is X, particularly if you're working with a partner. Um, often they want to solve the problem for you because they don't want, to, want you to suffer because they love you. And sometimes you just actually need to be heard. So if you want that level of support, just be really clear with them because that sets up the dialogue for success. Um, the other thing is if you have it in your wheelhouse and it's something you do, speak to your therapist about this. That is their job. They are designed as their profession to sit there and listen to you and to help you understand. They are designed to encourage self-reflective practice. When I say they are, the profession is designed, not them as individuals. They're not robots that have been rolled out once they have degrees. It's, yeah, it's it's very much those things. So those four strategies break the circuit. They they help stop the spiral. I want to say the other thing that like if you're in that spiral and you feel like you, you're quite close to the bottom of that vortex or you're really in the bottom and you 
that those sort of things aren't within your reach, that's when you need to have a conversation with someone around you and just say, I just need help. I'm feeling these things and I need help. And with that trusted advisor, make a plan. And if you don't have that person in your world, go to your GP and have a conversation with your GP. The bravest thing you can ever do that you can ever do is when you're feeling in a dark place, go to the door and turn on the light switch or open it and walk out. Now, that is the bravest thing you can ever do. And it is not an easy thing to do. But know if you're doing it, you're not weak, you're not lesser, you're not important, you're not of value, all those things that we feel ourselves. You are, in fact, incredibly strong, valuable, and in that moment, you're being brave. For those of us who haven't spent a lot of time analysing whether what we're feeling is self-doubt or self-reflection and whether it's healthy or not, are there any physical symptoms that can help us tell the difference between whether it's productive or if we're in some kind of um, like a stressed, self-doubting loop? It's what you just said. The key word is distress. You're socially distressed because if you're doubting yourself, you're doubting your existence in your social connections, you're doubting your existence in your tribe, you're doubting your safety. So yes, Right. So sometimes we don't necessarily have the ability to articulate in our head, but we know that when we see that person, we feel uncomfortable. Right. So your sense, I just got a feel. You often hear people say, I just got a feeling. Never ignore that. That feeling is critical. That feeling is actually your brain picking up on nonverbal cues, nonverbal communication. It's picking up on a sense of your ability to build a relationship or not build a relationship with that person. This is critical and iconic to being human. And if we didn't have this capability, we would not be here as a species today. So often if you're feeling those feelings, just sit with them. Okay, what am I feeling? Okay, where is this coming from? What do I want to do with this? What is this trying to tell me? And you'll notice that all those questions are what or when. And then I want you to lead with how. How am I going to handle this? What do I need to do? I want you to ask in those moments what, how, and when questions. I actually want you to avoid why sometimes. Self-reflective why is okay to get to the root cause, but after that, I want you to focus on what, how, and when. Why? But no pun intended. Because when we flick into what, how, and when, we're into problem-solving mode. We're actually into thinking about planning. We're into going through what needs to happen next and how do I do something with it. And when we do that, we use our higher part of our mind, our executive functioning, a part of our brain called our prefrontal cortex. And in that instance, we can calm some of those emotions. We're moving away from those emotional centers of our mind and our limbic system, and we're moving into solutioning. And that naturally allows us to take back control of the situation. And that sort of becomes a really powerful tool to reduce some of that self-doubt. I want to be really clear that you can't do this all the time, though. Self-doubt is a natural part of life. You know, I'm talking about this. I understand the processes. I literally understand it down to the tiny mechanisms of complexity. But I still have self-doubt because I'm human, right? So what I want you to think about is it's like I have self-doubt. I'm human. Tick. You know, like, good, got the T-shirt. No, I'm human. It's normal. It's also the thing that keeps us humble, that keeps us, you know, in check with our own behavior. That means we actually want to build positive relationships with other people. That means we build healthy relationships with other people. So self-doubt isn't necessarily a negative thing. Self-doubt is there to encourage self-reflection and that self-reflection is a really fantastic opportunity for growth and a fantastic opportunity for us to tell our brain how we would rather process these feelings instead. 
Remember that when you think about things, when you analyze your own behavior, you can change the physical structures of your mind, which changes your feelings, your thought processes, and therefore your actions and behaviors outside of yourself. So this practice is not just you know, philosophical and inward. It actually has really tangible and meaningful impacts in what happens for you and the world around you. Okay, so hard one. Um, how do we cultivate that self-compassion when we're being really hard on ourselves? Practice and desire meaning you actually have to want to be compassionate and you have to practice it to yourself. There's a seriously plethora of things you could do, but the one thing I want you to do is use what's called your best friend filter. If you wouldn't say it to your best friend, stop saying it to yourself. Now, if you're like, well, I don't, I don't have that best friend. There is someone in your world that you love. Would you say that to the person you love? And the answer is probably no. And if you're like, you know what, I don't think there is, I want you to think about little you and I want you to say what little you needed to hear at the time. And without going into the complexities of the psychological understanding of inner child work, what I'm saying is somewhere along the line there's something that you didn't hear that made you think that this was a conversation that you should be having with yourself. Somewhere along the line, you picked up either from the home, from school, from society, from somewhere that this is the conversation you would be having, which should be having with yourself because of something to do with you. And it's time to change it. So it comes with practice. It's not going to be easy. There's a default, right? You know, my default road, my default neurological connection is currently talking to myself like this. I don't want to go there. I want to go over here. So, okay, I'm starting to talk to myself negative again. This is unfair. This is unkind. I know it is. What am I going to say to myself instead? Well, what would I say to my best friend? Okay. So my best friend's name is X. I'm going to now talk to that person, but I'm going to use me instead. So Shelly, yes, that sucks. That's hard. But, you know, there were things outside of your control that also happened there too. Perspective. Like, Shelly... You're being really hard on yourself. That's, that's not fair to you, right? That's not helpful. Those sorts of identifications. And I know everyone's like, well, I'm crazy. I'm talking to myself. Every single person on the planet has an internal dialogue. Like again, tick, checkbox, human. So the practice of self-compassion and the practice comes with practice. It's actually in the statement. You have to practice it and that means being aware of the conversation you're having with yourself and then choosing to change it. I mentioned before that the brain seeks to answer the question it's been asked. If you look for all the ways that you are the victim, if you look for all the ways that you are the guilty party who's sitting in the gallows, you will find that data. And your brain's not bad and you're not bad, but it's just doing its job. It's answering the question you're asking it. Equally, if you ask it the question about compassion and perspective and fairness and kindness, it will answer that and you will find those data points. If you're struggling with that concept internally, you still can't seem to break the cycle, have that conversation externally with that person who is your best friend. And again, if that person isn't in your world or you feel that you don't have that support, I would be having a conversation with your GP and seeing if you can get a referral to a counsellor or a psychologist who is going to help you do that work. Sometimes that voice is really loud 
And sometimes we do need a clinician to come in and help us have a conversation like that or give us the tools to do it. And I want to be really clear that, again, that does not make you weak. It does not make you lesser than. It does not mean that there's something inherently wrong with you. There's some form of defect. It simply means you're human having a human experience. And no person on this planet has got by or lived a long life without help and support from other people around them. In our next episode, Helen McCabe and Jamila Rizvi on times they've managed to turn self-doubt into self-belief. I think I grew so scared of that and my sense of self-belief had been so deeply eroded and then I just kept reinforcing it by not doing it. And because by not doing it, people stopped asking me to do it because I said no the last three times. And I took that as another sign of not being wanted. And so that negative self-talk and that erosion of self-belief got worse and worse and worse. Mindset is created by FW Jobs Academy with support from the Australian Government's Office for Women. FW champions gender equality in Australian workplaces through professional development, advocacy and community. If you'd like to know more, go to futurewomen.com or find out how to register for our Jobs Academy at jobsacademy.futurewomen.com.